0: Three, two, one. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to There Will Be Bugs. I am your host, Ben. And today I have another special guest on the show, and they're going to be talking about the research that they're doing. Special guest, can you introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Uh, my name is Emily Rose Savage. I am a fourth-year PhD candidate at Texas A&M University, Department of Entomology. Um, my advisor is Dr. Mickey Eubanks. So he is a insect ecologist, insect community ecologist, and I'm really interested in plant defenses.
0: Awesome. How did you how did you find yourself at Texas A&M, and uh, where did you go for undergrad? Uh, have you always been in an entomology tract or did you kind of get into it in your graduate studies?
1: Yeah, so I got my bachelor's from Wilkes University. So that is, I guess, like 30 minutes from Scranton, Pennsylvania. If you like the office, that's uh, Scranton fame. And in 2019, uh, you and I met at uh, Brookhaven National Lab Uh, We did our, I guess it's not technically an REU, but during that time, I was looking at PhD programs. I was definitely looking at kind of a lot of different things. So plant pathology was another thing I was looking at. um, And I started looking at entomology because I was really interested in plants, first and foremost. And then I kind of stumbled into the world of plant-insect interactions. And that got me really excited. I learned about BT crops and all this stuff, and I just was hooked. And I found A and M, and I found uh, Mickey Eubanks, my advisor. Um, so he was a professor at Auburn when my undergraduate advisor was a graduate student there. And so my grad or my undergrad advisor said, "You should check Mickey out." So Mickey and I clicked, and I guess here I am at A and M.
0: It's funny because uh, I remember when we were working at Brookhaven, you were looking into PhD programs and you received word from Texas A&M that they were going to fly you out there to, to kind of get the lay of the land. And at the time, I was also super interested in plants and didn't really think about Insects as like a as a you know pathway, and then I took ento general ento the next semester, and then I was completely changed. So I kind of also had a moment where I was like uh, really into plants. That's what got me at Brookhaven because it was more of a forest health monitoring program, and then I took ento, and now I'm in a, a master's program for entomology. So it's it's funny how uh, when you start out with plants and then. You know, you realize that insects are just so much cooler.
1: Yeah, insects interactions with plants is what makes plants ten times more exciting. But I do think it's funny because I distinctly remember, you know, sitting at the little table in in our office at Brookhaven, (laughs) and you had collected a bunch of bugs and you just dumped them on the desk and we were all looking at them and we're all excited, and um, that's something that always sticks out in my memory as being like, oh, I think entomology might be interesting. What what an influence you are. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I didn't even know it at the time. And <laughs> here we are. So what what kind of work are you doing at Texas A&M? I um,
1: am interested in, I guess, agroecology and chemical ecology. The project that I'm currently working on is looking at genetic variation in the production of herbivore-induced plant volatiles or um, HIPVs So these HIPVs are really attractive to um, insect predators and parasitoids. And so the idea is then, can we use these HIPVs to um, attract beneficial insects and reduce pest pressure? And so, you know, there's I I guess I'll get off on a little bit of a sidetrack here. But, you know, typically when we're breeding for plant resistance, we're talking about these direct defenses So repellents, um, maybe things like trichomes or toxins, things like that. But there is a whole other world to plant defenses, like indirect defenses. Um, So these HIPVs fall into that category of the plant interacting with this other trophic level to kind of alleviate this pest pressure off of themselves. That's kind of where I got excited. It's like this whole new avenue of research to potentially improve our resistant crop varieties. Uh sorghum. So I study nope. sorghum. I didn't know what it was when I got to A&M. They don't really grow it in our neck of the woods, but it's a grain crop. It's used for things like animal feed. You can also eat it, but we don't really do that here. It's Basically I've it's Sorry, yeah, it's to... a grass.
0: I didn't know if it was a grass, so it or if it was more of a broadleafed grain.
1: Yeah, it's a grass. We call it the redheaded stepchild because it's got these red grains and a lot of people are allergic to it. It's a grass. You know, when I'm out in the field, I I don't really react to it anymore. But I've seen people like their skin just gets all bright red and puffy. So nobody nobody likes sorghum so much. Uh, (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I've looked at variation in these HIPVs among um, sorghum varieties. And then also variation and attraction to predators. So both in the lab and out in the the field or at our farm um, at A and So that's been a lot of fun.
0: Awesome. And, and so, what are some of the pests that you're dealing with with sorghum? And what are some of the beneficial predators that you're you're dealing with? What 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 are a scope of insects that we're talking about here?
1: Sure. So my dissertation is focusing on sorghum aphid, which was previously called the sugarcane aphid. We kind of figured out that, so I guess I'll back up. In 2013, uh, Mm -hmm. we had this new aphid in sorghum and we said, oh, that's the sugarcane aphid, which we already kind of knew about. We thought that it had switched hosts um, to sorghum and there was this new biotype and it was really destroying sorghum production. We Kind of figured out a little bit later that this is a completely different species. So we have the sorghum aphid. And as far as our natural enemies go, um, we have two species of parasitoid wasps. We have a bunch of different lady beetles. I think there's 10 or 13 different species. We've got lacewings, the brown and the green lacewings, minute pirate bugs. I'm trying Mm -hmm. to think. Uh, Surfid flies are another. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good summation of who who we're dealing with in terms of uh-huh. the, the players in my own story but as far as other pests in sorghum that i've kind of worked with or encountered um there's the sorghum midge and then the fall army worm so okay. those are two that stick out in my head but i definitely i'm a sorghum aphid gal so a lot of my work has been on them
0: how do you how do you like working with aphids I know there's a lot of mixed, I hear a lot of mixed thoughts about aphids.
1: Yeah, so my species of aphid is very tiny. You know, they're already tiny, but these are just so, so tiny. So I'm not one of those people who can like pick them up with a little paintbrush and move them. I have to like let them walk on their own onto the plant because I'll just crush them. Um, and then there's honeydew everywhere all of the time. So <laughs> I am constantly just sticky, um, which is not my favorite way to be. But yeah, they're they're kind of fun. I had some difficulties this summer because I was manually infesting plants.
0: So uh-huh. my idea
1: was if I, in the lab, I identified these varieties of sorghum that produce a lot of attractive HIPVs and attracted mm-hmm. natural enemies in the lab. And then I had some varieties that weren't, attractive to natural enemies um, and didn't really produce these HIPVs. So I thought, okay, what if I put them out in the field and do I actually see more natural enemies attracted to my attractive varieties and do they suppress the pest? So no one's really been able to answer that before. We know that Uh yes, in the field, HIPVs can attract more natural enemies, but how does that um, translate into pest numbers? Is it below the action threshold or not? So basically, I I had this grand idea, and then I get out there, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to infest like over 100 plants with these very tiny aphids. So my students and I over the summer kind of came up with this idea to take like these hair clips and bobby pins and clip little clippings with aphids on them, and basically clip them onto plants and let them kind of mosey on. So that was like a ton of work and I hated the aphids for a solid two summers but I'm, I'm back to liking them again because I don't have to deal with them so much but
0: it sounds like you kind of wrote a new technique on distributing aphids I don't know <laughs> if, you, if you're publishing this in your thesis but it, I this idea of just putting the aphids on the clips and then putting the clips on the plants so you don't crush your aphids it sounds like you have a million dollar idea right there
1: I don't know. Maybe I could like patent it or something. I don't know. So, you know, the, there have been similar experiments, but they work with caterpillars. So obviously you can just go, you know, you could pick them up and just put them right on there. So that was kind of an added complexity of this study system, but it was, it was pretty fun and pretty interesting. So yes. And the goal is to publish. So
0: <laughs> uh, I guess uh, we should get into what did you find? Did you find more of these beneficial? Uh, predators. Uh, what what's the acronym that you're using?
1: HIPVs.
0: HIPVs. Did you find more of these HIPVs on the plants that you thought you would, and was the aphid number lower? And was it uh, low enough where it's like tolerable in this uh, in an economic uh, standpoint?
1: Yeah. So for the first summer that I did this project, so that was two years ago. We did find that the variety producing these attractive HIPVs did, in fact, have more natural enemies, so more predators, more parasitoids than the other varieties that I tested that really weren't producing those HIPVs. And those that variety was able to suppress or attract enough natural enemies that the aphids were suppressed below the action threshold. I kind of, since I manually infested them, I knew that each plant, no matter the variety, started off with 50 aphids per leaf. So then I was able to gauge how that number changed throughout the season. And that variety kept them, I think it was on average, like 10 aphids for the entire plant. The action threshold for this system is uh, 50 aphids per leaf. So we were were, uh, sitting pretty with that and I was really excited. Um, The second summer was not so pretty across the board, aphid numbers were really low, no matter what variety it was. I definitely had some issues just getting to that initial number of 50 aphids per leaf. So I think um, I had some abiotic factors working against me. So, you know, I'm from Pennsylvania originally, and I'm not used to it being 116. So I think uh, we had some mortality there. And then just, it was either really dry towards the middle of the summer or really wet towards the beginning. I think it was just a weird year. But that first year, we got those really exciting results. But it's ecology. So, you know, it's lots of variation, I guess you could say.
0: Yeah, and when you're trying to get gets relevant data it helps if everything was consistent but like you said we're we're dealing with natural systems in a field setting where you, there's so many things that can be unpredictable so that that second year with that tough weather was that was that on, not only detrimental to the uh, man i cannot remember that acronym that you keep using
1: oh the hipvs
0: yeah was it not only uh detrimental to them but also like aphid production um was it do you feel like the weather was just messing with all the insects out in the field
1: yeah so that's a good point so with the HIPVs you know these these plant volatiles a lot of people are able to study them in the lab so it makes it really easy we can measure you know the rate of emission how much is being emitted From the plant at a given time. Um, But when you move out into the field, we don't know a lot about how these HIPVs vary, you know, with certain temperatures, with certain humidities. You know, what what abiotic factors are causing them to change? And then, okay, how does that change interactions between the plant and say the predator? Um, I think that the second year is really a testament to that knowledge gap that we we really don't know how they change. Um, and I really wanted to measure that HIPV production in the plants out in the field too. So I could match like HIPV production with responsive predators. But you know, the there's some logistical constraints with that. And I was only one person, so it was it was a lot. So I think in the future, if someone else were to do this, I would definitely recommend getting you know these portable pumps these air vac pumps and getting some hipv measurements out there so you can correlate it with predator attraction but yeah so i had low numbers of predators as well so i think in general the insects were just not pleased with the level of heat we were experiencing and it was a drought too so it was just a a funky year
0: and i guess that's just how it goes sometimes
1: yeah <laughs> i I felt lucky though, because you know there were other graduate students who work in these cropping systems, and there was a master's student down in Corpus Christi, so that's three hours south of us and she planted her sorghum I think two or three times, and it was so dry that it died three times. It did not get you know above you know ankle height. so I was lucky that my plants got to survive, I guess, but yeah it's it's tough down here for sure.
0: Absolutely, and it's it's gotta be so stressful when. In the end you're you are a grad student and you are trying to produce a paper and when things are kind of falling apart around you and you're stressing out on whether you're you're gonna be able to complete your paper, if you're gonna be able to defend your thesis and you're just hoping you get some sort of data that you can move forward with. It's gotta be just super stressful at that point.
1: Absolutely. I think um so I usually have undergraduates that work with me because this is a massive amount of of data that I collect are massive to me I guess there's there's bigger projects out there right but I think they could sense about halfway through the summer that I was getting a little bit stressed because they're like are you doing okay today and I'm like yeah yeah I'm fine and in my head I'm just you know constantly aphids I'm dreaming I had nightmares about aphids and honeydew and like it's just yeah I'm, I'm glad it's done it was a lot of fun but also, I think I was having stress nightmares about aphids, so it was time to be time to be done with that.
0: I think your your research kind of connects to a bigger idea that you and I were talking about before this meeting, and that's plant host resistance. And uh, do you want to again kind of remind everyone what H I P V stands for, and maybe go into plant host resistant and like this bigger picture of what you're really interested in?
1: Yeah. So, um, HIPVs, these herbivore-induced plant volatiles. So, you know, these are these chemicals that are being produced by the plant in response to herbivory. And, you know, they can be very specific. So, if an aphid eats a plant, it's going to produce a very different blend of these chemicals than if a caterpillar eats these plants. And so, HIPVs are unique to the attacker and the plant. But in the overall kind of framework of herbivore or um, host plant resistance right? We definitely focus a lot on these direct defenses. How does the plant directly affect an herbivore? You know, you could think of things like Bt. So these Bt crops have um, these toxins that directly kill that, that herbivore. And, you know, it works really great, but there's a whole other side to plant defenses that we really haven't tapped into. And so these HIPVs are an avenue to kind of rope biological control into host plant resistance. So how can we make them work together well? How can we have a plant that can defend itself directly, but also attract predators and kind of pick off the last last man standing? You know what I mean? So there hasn't been a ton of work yet that's been able to even look at what genes are associated with HIPV production and across varieties. So, you know, crop breeding has not incorporated HIPVs into, uh, you know, breeding resistant plants. So it's really exciting. And I think too, that's, I was talking with, about this with my students the other day. You know, There's research in, OK, if we can find attractive HIPVs, why don't we make a lure? Let's put out lures that can attract predators. But that's not a silver bullet that, to me at least, has enough evidence that it works very well. And then there's other people who are like, oh, we have all these cool toys. We're in the 21st century. Let's do genetic engineering. What if we turn Turn the plants on. I'm using air quotes um, (laughs) and have it constantly producing these really attractive HIPVs. Well, we have studies that are showing, okay, if you do that, the plant might not grow as much. The Mm. plant might not have as big of yield. And you know, you have to think too bio in these biochemical pathways, if you're constantly producing one compound, which has various precursors, what are you taking away from in other biochemical pathways? this idea that with my dissertation, can we find plant varieties that are already producing these attractive HIPVs naturally? You know, we don't need to do anything to them. They're just attractive. And can we put those out in the field rather than putting out a variety that doesn't produce these HIPVs? And really, like in most systems, we don't know what variety is attractive and what's not. So that's Kind of the, I guess, the bigger picture here is can we improve host plant resistance with these HIPVs and, you know, make it more sustainable? Can this last longer than something like BT? We've got insect populations that already aren't really affected by it anymore. And that can happen yeah. within a span of two to 20 years.
0: Crazy how quickly resistance can occur.
1: Yeah. So I think it's a really interesting and exciting avenue that we can go down now to expand kind of our knowledge of host plant resistance and improving crop breeding for resistant plants.
0: Would you be concerned if a plant was always producing these attractive HIPVs for predators, that the predators may become almost like desensitized to that chemical signal. Like if that signal's always out there, the predator that might just at, at that point kind of become like unaware of it.
1: That's a good point. So that's the problem with or I guess. Uh, I shouldn't say a problem, but one of the issues potentially with genetically engineering crops to be producing these HIPVs. Yeah, they can become desensitized and they might not respond, which is a problem with my work. The idea is, is that these volatiles are only induced. They're not constantly produced. So this specificity um, in timing, in space and time is really important. That's the idea then that if we actually do have an herbivore, the plant can appropriately respond at the right time, and then our predators aren't becoming desensitized to it.
0: Gotcha. So this idea of the plant produces it only when it's when it needs it. That way it's not wasting resources to produce it, and the predators aren't getting confused and just becoming desensitized to the signal.
1: Yeah, exactly. So that's... Another fun part of my research.
0: So it sounds like a very IPM approach, kind of getting behind past this idea, these traditional ideas of just spraying, 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 and then with like BT, it's always there. And so the insect is eating it and becoming resistant to it. It's only using these resources when we absolutely need to, that way we're not just purposely breeding resistance into insects.
1: Yeah, I think this technique is really just like the pinnacle of IPM, right? Because you're combining host plant resistance and biological control and kind of marrying them. So they work really nicely together and potentially reducing the amount of insecticides you have to use. You know, in my study system, there are, I think, two or three insecticides that are now approved and labeled to control the sorghum aphid. Um, But one of them, it's not a neonic, but it's kind of similar in its action. You know, they've got all these crazy chemical classes that I just can't keep track of. But (laughs) and, you know, that's not good for our pollinators. There are growers that spray on schedule. So it's like, okay, on this day, this day and this day, I'm going to spray no matter what. I'm not going to scout. I do think that, you know, maybe a million years down the road, hopefully sooner than that. We can kind of figure out, you know, if I plant this variety and I can attract these beneficial insects that are already in the ecosystem, by the way, I'm not adding any, they're just there. So that's another fun part. But yeah, how can we make this more sustainable? How can we make this last longer? And how can we reduce the amount of insecticides that we're spraying?
0: I understand it is a hard job being a farmer. And in the end, you're trying to put food on your table for your family. But it is still crazy to me that we're still doing scheduled spraying of pesticides, even though there's just so much evidence saying that that is the worst possible solution.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are tons of great papers that kind of look at, I I don't know if you could say the psychological aspect of what the farmer is thinking or the grower is thinking, but it is, yeah, like I almost don't want to trust that they're, I won't lose my money or I won't lose my, my crop. Um, And, you know, I, I totally get that too. Um, And that's part of the problem with implementing this IPM, these IPM tactics. It's like, how can we be a hundred percent sure that this is going to work in our favor? And clearly by my second year of research, at least those abiotic factors probably were taking out the aphids, but there's a lot of variation over time. So it's definitely, there's a lot to learn um, going forward about these defenses and plant defenses and all of that,
0: yeah, it's hard to ask people to go out on a limb and tr- trust you when science is messy. People want science to be nice, clear, and cut, and tell me that this will work hundred percent of the time when we we just can't do that as as scientists we can't we can't guarantee anything and so I, I think we like you said, there's that psychology of farmers then. Just going back to okay, well, this is what we've done. We're going to keep doing this because it's worked it's, it's worked to it up to this point. And it's hard to ask people to trust you and be like, I know this data isn't a hundred percent sound. It's not like you your your data like give the the golden thumbs up. Sometimes you just you just have to hope people trust you and you, you present them with both sides of the argument and and let them make the you know decision on their own and hope that they they choose that, that they can see your logic and your understanding
1: yeah and i think that's another thing about the HIPVs and these indirect defenses you know with something like bt it's like this is a toxin if i plant this it will kill the insect. And then part of the problem is, is we planted so much of it and didn't have these kind of like reservoirs of non-BT to keep these individuals who aren't resistant to it in the population. So, you know, the, these silver bullets almost get overused. Um, and then if we look at, you know, the indirect defenses, these HIPVs, there's a lot of components that need to be in place to make sure it works. So it's not just like the plant needs to be able to produce these things, these these compounds, but there needs to be enough natural enemies in the ecosystem to come to be attracted and to kill the pest. So we don't even know that, too. It's like so, so much work can be done about I'm in this landscape where I have a lot of forest around me or I have a lot of agricultural land around me. Do I have enough natural enemies to suppress the pests to be attracted to these HIPVs? So that's another question, like, what are the landscape factors that are going to affect this? Um, And then, like, okay, you have acres and acres of the same crop plant producing these HIPVs. So that's a big a big smell. Again, in air quotes, a big odor. What if you have uh, wild plants next to your next to your crops? Do their smells affect? The, the smells of your crop plant, does that confuse the natural enemies? Um, can they easily find their prey now? So yeah, there's there's so many unanswered questions that would be really exciting to answer.
0: If you were to continue your PhD for longer or, or keep, uh, keep researching this topic, what would you like to do more of?
1: That is a great question and I'm so excited to answer it. So um, <laughs> two things, I guess. One, these landscape effects that I was talking about, I think that would be really interesting. So if I could work in the same system, that's what I would do. And then the other thing, and you know, I don't have expertise in this. I am not a molecular biologist, nor am I a crop reader, but I would definitely be interested in potentially looking at, okay, can we associate the behavior of attraction of these natural enemies to the plant with genes that are upregulated. And I'm blanking on the term. Oh gosh, it's not marker-assisted selection, but that's the idea. Can we figure out, okay, what genes are upregulated in these plants that are attractive to natural enemies? And then can we actually breed plants that have these, these genes that are associated with HIPV production and attraction of oh. predators. Um, but I have no expertise whatsoever in any of that. I just think it's cool. So, oh, oh genome, genome-wide genome association study, that's it. So doing a genome-wide association study, looking at all these varieties, looking at volatile production and all of that, and saying, okay, how are they different? How are the attractive plants different from the unattractive plants? So. Anyway, yeah, I would love to do that, but I don't, too complicated (laughs) for someone like me.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure uh, after you're finished with your PhD, you're going to want to take some time to not be out in the field (laughs) researching. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I definitely think so. I'm in the the dissertation writing phase, so I... It's like nose to the grindstone right now. I'm like, oh, I got to finish. I got to finish. So uh-huh. I'm definitely looking forward to just a, a tiny break at the end. Yes. So
0: Absolutely. Do you have any, any tips for possibly like people thinking about getting into entomology or people, even just grad students in general? Uh, you've been at it for some time now. And so maybe you have some recommendations for people who are thinking about being interested in bugs, or people who are studying bugs and are are in the middle of their their graduate studies.
1: Uh, so I guess if you're looking for a graduate program and you're an undergraduate and you're really excited about entomology, first and foremost is just always get some research under your belt. So join a lab, do an RU like Ben and I did. Uh, we had a lot of fun at Brookhaven, and <laughs> some fun days, some some crazy days, but getting getting involved in research because, you know, I've mentored over 10 students, undergraduate students now, and some of them come in and they don't know if they like research and some of them think they might like research. And they both come to a conclusion just learning, you know, and they don't, they're not even interested in entomology. It's, am I interested in kind of doing this crazy stuff of, mundane tasks like pinning a bunch of bugs to plants. Am I okay with that? Do I like working with data? Do I find it fulfilling to answer these questions? So kind of getting your feet wet and figuring out, do I like this? And then, you know, as far as picking a graduate program, just figuring out what kind of topic area you're interested in and just talking with these advisors, these PIs, because that's kind of how I figured out what I was interested in. It was talking with a bunch of different PIs and they said, here's what I work on, but here's what I work on. Um, and I was like, oh, well, that sounds interesting. And that doesn't. So that helped me out. And then for someone in their graduate degree, I guess my advice is just keep going. <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know if I. it's a lot of fun. I've been having a lot of fun I've been able to do a lot of things and grow as a person and go to conferences and meet lots of people. So, grad school, despite being a lot of work, I think is a lot of fun. So, enjoy the fun parts, I guess, is maybe a good piece of advice.
0: Enjoy it while you're there.
1: Yeah. You only do this once, hopefully. No, no, <laughs> I, I've never met anyone with multiple PhDs, but.
0: Well, uh, thank you so much for joining the show, Emily. I really appreciate having you on and it was really good to catch up with you and get me thinking about the times uh, (laughs) at Brooklyn (laughs) event. on Long Island, going to the beach.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we we had a lot of fun. I always like to tell the story. I I know we're ending. I'll tell this story quick, but we were, we had, you know, the bags, they were like 70 pounds. They were huge on our backs and we would take turns. And we were in this really part, scrubby part of the, of the woods. And I remember I was crawling and you were like, come towards me. We were playing Marco Polo. I couldn't see you. And I put my hand down and it was right on a wasp nest. And I remember all of us scattered and I was on my back and I could not get up. And I don't know who dragged me out. I was maybe you and Ben or yeah, you and Jake. And you just dragged me out. You were like, we gotta go. But (laughs) so yeah, fun times. And then there were times like that where I was like, holy crap, I did that. That was a thing that we did. Anyway, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Thank you for um, having me on. I enjoyed talking about plants and bugs.
0: Awesome. Well, good luck going forward. And thank you again all our to all our listeners. Uh, this has been there will be bugs.